about transformed lives, transformed culture. Transformed lives, transformed culture. We've just finished a study on the emotionally healthy church. And we have, we drew something like this when we first started. We drew this. This is a human being. And I, uh, I told you about a doctor I used to have who when I'd go see him, he'd say, uh, Dick, have I ever showed you this? And he'd sit down and, and do this. He'd write body, intellect, emotion, and spirit. And then he'd go on to say, now, if you get a virus, it's going to affect, oh, offering. <laughs> I knew that. See, now, Rob was more subtle that time, early on. <laughs> if you're watching this on the web, you missed a good part. That's all I'm telling you. We've already prayed. Go ahead and receive the offering, fellas and ladies, if there are ladies. Yes. I'll never forget standing here one of my first Wednesday nights, and I was dismissing. I think we were taking the offering at the end then or something, and I felt a tug on my pant leg, and it was Rob Cole pulling on my pants down there. So... He didn't have to do that tonight. Thank you. So anyway, back to my body here. He says, if you get a virus here, it's going to affect your emotions, it's going to affect how you think, and it'll affect your spirit in some way. If you have an emotional deal going on, doctors know there's a lot of connection between emotion and illness a lot of times. Or if there's sin, if there's something that I've done to fracture my relationship with God or others, it's going to, it's going to work its way through me. So I'm all connected. And so we spent this time these last eight weeks or so talking about the emotionally healthy part of what it means to follow Jesus. Tonight, what I'd like to do is to sort of sum up by talking about heart or soul. What does it mean to give our all, to express our all, all of our heart? We, we use language like He's in, the, he's in the fight, in this fight, with all his heart and soul. By that language, we mean the core of him or her. She gave him her heart. She gave him all of her. That idea, for me, is captured in the psalmist's words in Psalm 42 that reads like this. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? This anticipatory thing, this anxious in a good way, this anxious, I can't wait. I'm standing on tiptoe to see what's going on. I yearn to be with this God. Some of you who are couples, you know how it is when you were younger and you were in love or in like or did you, just, you, you just called all the time and, you'd, and, and your heart pounded and your hands are sweaty and we'd... And, it was always on your mind. She was always, he was always on your mind. Or that thing, that event, that thing that I was engaged in was always on. That's this verse. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. This yearning for God. Ruth and I just came back from several weeks across the country driving. This is a wonderful land. You drive across the country and you, even parts of Nevada. I got to confess, Nevada is sort of the hard part because there's a lot of sagebrush in Nevada. But... But as you go across, it, it, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. And I went to visit a friend that I had met 
when he was a speechwriter for a senator in the United States Senate, a young guy, 23 years old and just smart as a whip and all this sort of thing. When he was 35 years old, he had an accident on the Rock Creek Parkway in Washington, D.C., and they rushed him to George Washington University Hospital and discovered that my friend David had a brain tumor, right, almost dead center. For the last nine years, he's been battling this brain tumor. It takes out his left side. He's got all kinds of challenges with that. But I went to see him in Charlotte, North Carolina. And uh, he always calls me folks. And I walk in, and he was sitting on the edge of the bed at his home. I said, so, David, you know, let's talk. We talked for a while. But at some point in the conversation, he said this. Folks, I have never felt closer to God in my entire life. I've never been so dependent on him, so engaged with him, so enamored of him. I mean, he used better words than that because he's got language. But this idea, this idea that I yearn for God is captured. History chronicles hundreds of individuals who have been, whatever language you use, sold out to God, all in with God. They have shaped and changed cities, towns, nations, regions. We would call them heroes of the faith. People like Moses and Joseph, you know, Moses, here's this, this guy who's raised in the house of Pharaoh. He was supposed to have been killed when he was a baby because that was the law of the land, if you will, under Pharaoh. And he was raised in Pharaoh's household, learned all the arts and all the craft of statehood. And then he killed a guy, so then he's wanted for murder. I mean, you, you know the story. You've got Moses, you've got Joseph, who was wronged terribly and ended up leading a whole nation. You have Daniel who stood up to the king and he had some brothers who walked with him in it. You have Samuel who as a boy heard the voice of God. And then you have the widow of Zarephath. The widow of Zarephath back in the kings, she's starving to death. She has just enough oil in, in, her, in her little uh, container to feed herself and her son. And the prophet comes and he says, bake me a cake if you do. And the, and the oil, the cruise of oil never ran out. A wonderful miracle. But we say Moses and Joseph and Daniel. And I say, how about the widow of Zarephath? How about her? Is she a hero of the faith? Is she all in? Is she so, does she yearn for God? Or how about Mary, the mother of Jesus? What a deal. 15 years old, probably. Pregnant. Out of wedlock, if you will. Scandal over her. But, but the Spirit says to her, you are blessed of God. Or how about her aunt Elizabeth? She's older, and she has that other boy six months earlier by the name of John the Baptist. And I'd, I'd say she's a hero of the face. To have a, have a wild son like that coming out of the desert, dressed funny, eating grasshoppers. I mean, you know. How about Lydia in Philippi when Paul goes there? She's a businesswoman. They do a church plant. She's a, she's a hero of the faith. Or Priscilla and Aquila, that couple who helped Paul. I mean, you can go on and on. But in church history, those are biblical pieces but in church history you have other people like that some of you may know this name amy carmichael amy carmichael was born in belfast her father was a pastor they worked with the poor and she went off to india she died in india in 1951 at the age of 83 20 years prior she had taken a fall and was bedridden most of her last 20 years but she before you count campaign came along here she was working with young women, little girls who were taken as temple prostitutes in the far south of India, and she would rescue them. And she had a whole, she had a whole place where a thousand, over time, a thousand little girls came, and they called her Amma. 
And in her, when somebody asked, what do, what do I need to do to be a missionary? What is missionary life like? She said, missionary life is simply a chance to die. When they buried her, she said, don't give me a tombstone. Don't give me a gravestone. So the girls put a bird bath over her grave with a single inscription, Amma. She said, one can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. She was sold out. She was all in. She's a hero of the faith to me. She's one of those people who says, my soul longs for you, O Lord. Or how about Letourneau? Some of you know Letourneau because he makes heavy equipment or made heavy equipment at Letourneau College in Texas. Here is a man who started a business and by the end of his life was giving 90% to the work of God and keeping 10% for himself. Or William Wilberforce, that's a better known name in history, who in the late 1700s championed the abolition of slavery in Great Britain. It took him 40 years. It broke his health in a lot of ways. He got a band of brothers and sisters to walk with him. Some of you may have seen the movie years ago, Amazing Grace, about his life. But here's, here's this man who had a spinal deformity, who was not a big man. And when he was running for parliament, one writer said he had the body of a shrimp but the voice of a whale. And he would stand up and give speeches in parliament against the slave trade of whom the people who were the landholders, if you will, the people who were profiting were sitting around him in the parliament and he stood up. He's, he's a hero of the faith for me, but he didn't do it by himself. There was this woman named Hannah Moore. Hannah Moore, who lived from 1745 to 1835, was a gifted playwright and poet. And as a young woman, she moved in London's most fashionable circles, but she became serious about her face. She started longing for God and turned herself to social reform. Her primary focus became the education of poor children. And encouraged by William Wilberforce and with financial help from another guy, she soon organized over 500 children into schools across the 75 square mile area. They continued their work over the objections of community leaders who thought it was dangerous and inappropriate to teach the poor to read in England of the day. You say, well, I didn't come for a history lesson. I came to be inspired to hear the word of God. Well, we'll get there. How about Borden of Yale? See, I, the, our history is replete with people who are long dead, long forgotten, but we shouldn't forget them. I would encourage you, if you want to read, you know, I, I like Louis L'Amour novels. He's an old Western writer. Good guys always win. You know, I love that. I need something where the good guys always win, and so I read it on airplanes. It's totally escapist. You say, does it have any redeeming social value? Yes, I like it, okay? <laughs> But if you want to read stuff that'll make whatever hair you have stand up, read biographies of people like this. How about Billy Borden? Billy Borden at eight years old in his sailor suit walked down the aisle of Moody Church in Chicago and gave whatever he knew of himself at eight years old to whatever he could understand of God. When he was 16, his father, who was the, who was the founder of the Borden dairy industry, you've had Borden milk, his father sent him around the world to be worldly wise and Bill Borden fell in love with the poor, came back and told his father he wanted to be a missionary. That didn't go over well. But when he was 17, he went to Yale. He was a millionaire by then. He went to New Haven. Some of you have been to New Haven, Connecticut. Part of it's Yale and part of it's just like slum. And there he built a home for seafaring sailors hard in their luck and for women of the street. And he helped them with his own money. 
his roommate and he decided they'd have a prayer each morning in their dorm room, and then a couple other guys wanted to do it. And by the time Bill Borden graduated from Yale in 1904, out of the 1,300 students in Yale University, 1,000 of them were in small groups, Bible studies, and prayer meetings on Yale University campus. He was touched by for the heart of Muslim folks around the world, and he was going to go to China. He felt if he was going to do that, he needed to learn Arabic, and so he went to, went to Cairo. That's just the little people on the roof. Don't worry about that. <laughs> He went to China, and there in China, or excuse me, he went to Cairo, and there he learned Arabic, and he also contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25. Someone said, boy, that's a tragedy to have life cut so short. And one of his colleagues wrote and said, when you have a life fully surrendered to Christ, life can never be cut short. It will always be just right. Three weeks ago at the University of Virginia, I had the privilege of speaking to a group a little larger than this, about 500 students. University of Virginia vies for number one public university in the country with Cal, Berkeley, and Michigan and some others. 15,000 students at, at UVA's campus. This year, just in the one group I was talking to, a group called Chi Alpha, just in that one group, they have 660 UVA students in small groups. That feels to me like some people are yearning for God and God's starting to do stuff in places we never dreamed they could. And so at some points in history, when you have enough people yearning for God, stuff breaks out. There are outbreaks of the Spirit that take it beyond ones and twos. In the Old Testament, a key point in Israel's history, Second Chronicles 5, this is how it reads, 5.10. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb. This is the dedication of Solomon's temple. They bring in the ark of the covenant, this box. It's the place where God dwelled in their minds, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. The priests then withdrew from the holy place, and all the priests who were there had consecrated themselves regardless of their divisions. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Haman, Jeduthun, their sons and relatives, stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen, playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets, and the trumpeters and singers joined in unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. And they raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, His love endures forever. And then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. These people who yearned for God and yearned for Him together, it's like God responded saying, like, I can't stand it. Because God in the Old Testament was in the holy place. And it's like when he hears himself being praised and called on, he comes busting out and says, I'm going to go out there and just be all over that thing. And so he comes out and it says that the priests who had, who had duties given by God were unable to, to minister because of the presence of the Lord in the place. Back in the day in this country, something like that would be called this. An awakening. An awakening. This is not a, a film or a movie with Robert De Niro. This is, a, this is what has happened historically in this country. 
I mean, in the, in the New Testament, you have one of those in Acts 2. And for time's sake, I won't read all of it. But in those first 13 verses, it says that the Spirit of God shows up on these people and they respond to him in praises and in languages they hadn't learned in German 403 and all kinds of ways. And people who were watching saying, who are these people? They've got to be drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. No, it's just that the Spirit showed up in a powerful way. So much so that the racial lines came down, the, the barriers of religious systems came down, that people were communing with God and with each other across the line. And that was the birth of the church. My question is, why is that in Scripture? Why are those things I just read and commented on, why are those in Scripture? J. Edwin Orr was a church historian some years back, trained at Oxford at the University of Chicago. And he was a specialist in church history and in what were called awakenings or revivals or renewals. Revival's not a biblical word. It just means to give life to something. This is a quote. It should be on the screen. There have been instances in the history of the church when the telling and retelling of the wonderful works of God have been used to rekindle the expectations of the faithful intercessors and prepare the way for another awakening. In the telling and the retelling of the stories of the things that God has done. You read the Old Testament and over and over again you hear God saying, Remember, O Israel, how I brought you out. Remember what happened in the desert. Remember how I delivered. When you tell and retell, retell the stories, the things that God has done, it inspires in the heart of prayers of people who give a rip. It inspires in their heart the desire to see an awakening again. Let me just toss on the screen something that might be of interest to you. This is, these are renewal moments and movements in the history of not the world, but at least of the United States. And number 10 down there, well, you haven't gotten there yet, but number 10 is, um, is Pentecost that I just referred to. But I'm going to go... Uh, and I'm going to throw our, our wonderful video people off here a little bit. But I'm going to go backwards up this list. This is just a listing by impact in terms of one person's observation of the impact of these. Number nine is the pre-reformation revival, 1300 to 1500. This is before the great Protestant Reformation. And you have names of groups like the Lollards. You have Wycliffe. You have Huss. You have, excuse me, Savannarola. These are names you wouldn't ordinarily know. But these were people in time that were part of these movements. The Reformation we're familiar with, 1517 with Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox. Then this comes closer to our time, 1965, 1970 in there, the Jesus movement. Anybody remember the Jesus movement? You say, I were one. I was one of those. I had hair down to hair and carried a guitar and wore beads. That was me. And, you know, I was doing all this stuff, and I was, it was free love, and I found out it wasn't love, and I found out it wasn't free, and then I met Jesus. <laughs> or the World War II revival from 1935 to 1950, when people like Billy Graham and Duncan Campbell and, and the New Zealand revivals came on the scene. I was talking to somebody today. You know, it's, it's interesting the people the Lord uses to promote his kingdom on earth. We think about Billy Graham. Here's Billy, 93 years old now, a lion in winter, if you will. I loved his most recent book, probably his last one that I referenced last year, and it's called Nearing Home. I love that title. But Billy Graham, when he was just a young guy out of North Carolina, went to Los Angeles to 
to hold a tent meeting, if you will, in L.A. And William Randolph Hearst heard about this young guy, and he sent word to the Los Angeles Times, one of his new newspapers, and said, Puff the kid. Puff that boy from North Carolina. And that started Billy Graham this way. You never know how things happen in order to encourage awakenings. The Layman's Revival, 1857 to 1861. Some people call it the Businessmen's Revival. It's where business leaders in various cities started praying because there were economic difficulties. And so it was self self-centered like most of my prayers are. Lord, help me in this. And I'm encouraged to make intercession for people, but also to bring my requests. And so we're needing help here, Lord. And what happened was that they started sending cables to each, cablegrams to each other around the various cities. And in various cities across the United States, they would meet for prayer at noon. And it was totally grassroots. And at one point in New York City, 100,000 businessmen every lunchtime across the city were meeting for prayer in that time. Can you imagine when your, your heart yearns for God, my, my soul yearns for you like a deer pants after water. There was the second great awakening back in 1780 to 1810 where it was a frontier revival. People were out there on the frontier. They didn't have churches and they, and they came 40, 50 miles longer than that in wagons, difficult traveling. They would camp for four or five weeks and they turned into what were called camp meetings. And it was all across all denominational lines Powerful things happened on the frontier. The first great awakening, 1727 to 750, I'm almost done, 1750, was both in Europe and here. Guys named Zinzendorf and Wesley and Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards along the eastern seaboard. But the 1904 revival in Wales probably is, is uh, as profound a time as, as you will find. There was one I missed here. It's the General Awakening, 1830 to 1840, with a guy named Charles Finney. He was a lawyer who came to Jesus and was profoundly moved. And in, in one of the meetings in Rochester, New York, it was so profound in the town that the city jail was closed for five years. You say, but you, you're making that up. Well, I no. It's hard for us to imagine that, but could it be that God could do something so profound in a town or in a nation or in, that the crime rate would drop? Is it possible to believe that God could do something so profound in me that it would revolutionize my personality and make me tender instead of grumpy? Well, I don't want to go there because sometimes I'm grumpy. But, I, but <laughs> is it, would it be possible? But the Welsh Revival in 1904, the Lord used a man named Evan Roberts. If you go to Wales today, you will find churches that are museums but in 1904, they weren't. Because things like that don't last forever. They might last five years or 10 or sometimes even 30 or 40. But it was such a profound move of God. People started seeking him and yearning for him in such profound ways. All these miners started coming to Jesus. And, and they had trouble in the mines, we're told, because they couldn't get the mules to hold, haul the ore wagons because their language had changed so profoundly, the mules didn't know what to do. Are you with me here? Now that's what I call an awakening. That's what I'm talking about right there. They would call the police department and the police would be mostly in crowd controls around the places where they were having these big meetings. And at one point they say, we don't have anybody for crowd control, but we do have a gospel quartet we could send over. You know, just people to come sing. You say, that's crazy. No, it wasn't crazy. 
It was a real deal. It was a moment in time when individuals whose hearts yearned for God came together in a profound way. The causes of awakening seem to be rooted in what is happening in a society at the moment. When a culture has deviated too far from moral and religious underpinnings, from true north, if you will, and things are going on. When, when you read about these great awakenings in, in our country earlier, I mean, you had religious rivalries, churches going at each other, politicians going at each other. You know, you got problems with all kinds of alcoholic stuff. and All, all this stuff is going on. And in that moment, people felt desperate enough to seek God. Awakenings often were followed by social, political, and economic institutional changes. Some countries have a totally different challenge than that. In, in those countries, believers are hounded and killed, much like Saul did in the book of Acts. The church is persecuted for believing that Jesus is Christ, people like you and me. Hounded, killed, families destroyed. We have in the back here some tables with some volunteer friends, a group called Voice of the Martyrs. There are people as we speak who are being dragged off to prison without trial for only one reason around the world, for only one reason, that is that they dare to stand and say, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and I'd like, I'd like you to know him too. 